Amen. Amen. Thank you for the gift of music this morning. Good morning, church. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm the senior pastor here at AUMC. I want to welcome those of you who are in the room and online with us this morning to worship. That itch that you feel on the back of your neck where the tag is on your shirt, and you're wondering, why do they still make shirt tags that are itchy? How have they not solved this problem yet? That pit in your stomach as you're about to ask that really important question to that person that you don't just like, you like, like. That shifting in the seats and the groan that comes across the crowded table at Thanksgiving as your uncle, that one uncle, we all know the uncle we're talking about, breaks the glass on the subject of politics. Oh, here we go. When you go to help your buddy move and you reach down to go and lift up the couch and it's in that moment you realize you were older than you were the day before. Discomfort. Discomfort comes in different forms, different ways. It could be physical, it could be mental, emotional, spiritual. Discomfort is not something that we necessarily enjoy. In fact, most of the time we try to figure out how to live without it. There are products for days, pardon me, <coughs> products for days that are designed to help alleviate discomfort in our lives. Folks that will sell us as many remedies as possible to make sure that we can live the most comfortable life that we possibly can. We have a culture that seems to be pursuing this far-off distant dream of a life of comfort, right? Discomfort can, at times, be helpful, though. Sometimes we have to do things that create this discomfort, that are uncomfortable. And sometimes God will even lead us into places and with people and into seasons where discomfort is the norm, not the exception. And some really powerful redemptive work can come out of those places and people and seasons. And so what is the role of discomfort in life and in the life of faith? Because as we exist and live and function within a larger culture here in the United States where um, comfort is sort of this pursued dream, something that um, we are sold on day in and day out. Um, we can eliminate every discomfort that we want to, including uncomfortable people from our lives. For the last 30 years, it's been commonly known that uh, news media has changed the way that we have public discourse. I imagine if I did a poll of the room, everybody has their preferred channel and the channel they really hate. That's the one you definitely know. Or maybe you don't like any of it. Social media in the last 10 years has, in its own quiet way, uh, been working us through its algorithms and pushing us into zones where we will feel more comfortable because guess what? There are so many people in the world that think and look and act and, and function exactly as you do and will say, you are right, you are right, you are right, and they are so wrong. They are so wrong. They are so wrong. And so even though we're living now in what is the most diverse age um, that we have experienced here locally. I mean, I don't know where you're joining us online, but here in DFW, I mean, ultra-radical diversity, and yet for many it's also uh, the season of what feels like the greatest divisiveness that any of us have ever known. And, and that's, the, that's the hard part of living in diversity is that frequently diversity and division go hand in hand. Because guess what? Diversity can make a lot of us uncomfortable for being really honest with ourselves. When we're surrounded by people and places and things that don't look, act, believe, function, have the same backgrounds, whatever, than us, it's a, it's a wonderful ideal, but in reality, it can lead to a lot of friction and a lot of discomfort. The church is not immune to this. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the most segregated hour of the week in America is when? Right now, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Right? 
So the church is not immune. In fact, the church has been complicit in building up this, this divisiveness amongst our diversity. And I believe that God is calling us as a church to lean into diversity and to, and to lean into this discomfort in a way that creates redemption and healing and growth for us as a larger people. But that is hard work. That is hard work. And so today we're going to look at a text that comes from Paul's letter to the Romans where he is addressing a church very much like the ones we have in our, in our homes today, the, the churches that exist here in a diverse and yet divided people and place. The church in Rome is, where, is what I'm talking about. And before we talk about the church in Rome, let's talk about Paul. Paul used to be a guy named Saul. I don't want to ever assume anybody in the room knows anything, right? This could be your first Sunday in church or first Sunday in a long time. Paul used to be a guy named Saul, and Saul was someone who lived with deep convictions about his faith, so much so he was what we call a zealot of his faith. He was such an extremist in his Jewish tradition that he was willing to physically harm and even kill those with whom he disagreed. Saul was a persecutor of this early Christian movement that was growing within the Jewish tradition. We should always keep in mind that most people that start religions don't realize they're doing so. Most religions are started as a reformation movement within an existing tradition. Christianity was a reformation movement within the Jewish tradition, and Saul was anti-Christian movement for the first part of his life. And then one day he encounters the Spirit of Christ on a road. And he feels his spirit changed in a way that leads to his name being changed. And he's no longer Saul, and he's now Paul. And he's no longer persecuting Christians. In fact, he's helping to lead this new movement. And he starts to travel all over the Mediterranean into these incredibly diverse uh, port towns and trade towns and hub cities and even um, eventually to Rome. And, these, and he becomes one of the first Christian church planters, basically, someone who starts Christian churches. And then he becomes like a church consultant, and everybody wants to be a consultant, right? Well, that's, that's his job when he's writing these New Testament letters. He's writing these letters of consultation, basically, as a pastoral leader to these churches. And, and the church in Rome is dealing with a very specific problem. And it all has to do with this emperor named Claudius. So the church in Rome is founded sometime after Jesus' death and resurrection, and for the first about 10 years of its existence, it, it is growing amongst both Jews and Gentiles living in Rome. And, and so because there are Jewish Christians present there from the beginning, a lot of their practices look and feel very Jewish in nature because, again, they didn't feel like they had been converted to some new religion. They were just part of this Reformation movement in their faith tradition. And so going to the church in Rome probably felt a lot like going to synagogue in Judea. But then Claudius takes over as Caesar in about the year mid-40s, 45-ish, we're not entirely sure. And Claudius is violently anti-Semitic. And so he expels all the Jews from Rome. And if you're a Jew living in Rome and you have to go live somewhere else, you're probably going to go to Judea, your homeland, your, your, your people, your family. So the Jewish Christians go to Judea for about 10 years, and there they go to synagogue, they go to temple, they practice their Jewish traditions just like they always had, except now they're also preaching this good news of Jesus, the Messiah that had been prophesied. So they're, they're living that life. Meanwhile, the Gentiles in Rome continue to grow and build the church. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church before, but how much can a church change in 10 years? Right? How much can your hometown change in 10 years? Have you ever had that moment where you go back home and you go, well, that wasn't there before? My wife grew up in Salina, Kansas. I remember when, when we were first dating, actually, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary of when I proposed to her uh, last night. And uh, when we first went to Kansas, Salina together, uh, it had changed in a big way since she had left. You know, they had an olive garden when we, moved, when we went back and visited. It was above the fold in their, in their hometown paper, Olive Garden in Salina. Um, 
a lot can change in 10 years. And so this Gentile Christian church in Rome suddenly looks and feels a lot less Jewish. And then Claudius dies, and a new emperor takes over, and he's not nearly as anti-Semitic, and so he opens Rome back up to Jewish people. So all of those who've been living in Judea for only 10 years, maybe less, they say, let's go back to what feels like home. So they go back to Rome, and the Jewish Christians go and find the Christian community, and then they walk in, and they see something very alarming and disturbing for them. They learn that the men are not circumcised. That people are eating pork and they are worshiping on Sunday. <gasps> right? And these three issues threaten the life of that church. They are ready to come to blows with each other. They cannot get along and it's ripping them apart. And while it may elicit perhaps a chuckle, I know the pastor said circumcision in church, while we may think these things are small potatoes 2,000 years later, I wonder if you've ever been in the midst of a conflict that felt really big at the time and then with some retrospect didn't feel so large. Because see, for the Jewish Christians... Circumcision and dietary laws and observing the Sabbath were three of the core components of their covenant with God. These three actions, these three parts of their life, the way they lived out their faith, they were, they, it helped to define them as the people of God who are in relationship with God. And to cease doing one of these things was to cut yourself off from God. So it's life or death for, for them. They come in and they see this church living outside of covenant and they cannot wrap their heads around it. And they're ready to split. So then Paul writes this letter in an effort to build a bridge between the Jews and the Gentiles in this church in Rome. Those who had this deep well of tradition that, that Paul knew was rich and had so much promise and so much goodness and yet was not sufficient to carry them forward into the future. And also these folks who were new and excited and didn't give a lick about the tradition, didn't give a lick about where they'd been, and yet they needed something more to ground them and they couldn't fully understand what they'd been a part of unless they knew about where they'd been. So he's trying to thread this needle between these two communities and trying to help them see how much they need each other. And for 12 chapters in the book of Romans, um, Paul is, is laying out this very heady theology, but we're not going to talk about that. Instead, in chapter 13, he begins to land the plane and come down to the nuts and bolts of life here on earth. And in chapter 14, it's really where the rubber meets the road, and he begins to address the food and the Sabbath. That's what we're going to read this morning. As a people who live in a diverse and a diverted or divided world, how does Paul see that our faith can lead us into fruitful discomfort? That's what we're going to ask today. So we're beginning in Romans 14, verse 2, if you would like to read along where you are. And Paul says this, One person believes in eating everything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And I don't want to get any emails about this. This is wrapped up in Paul's own personal tradition and everything. If you eat only vegetables, Paul is not saying that you are weak today in 2021. Just to clarify, let's not get caught off sides on that one. Those who eat must not look down on the ones who don't. And the ones who don't eat must not judge the ones who do, because God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servants? Each person must have their own convictions. We don't live for ourselves and we don't die for ourselves. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we belong to God. I tried to reach for my glasses there. They're not on my face today. So Paul begins this chapter, and he's addressing the very way that we live and see others as followers of Jesus, because he knows that where we have this breakdown when it comes to diversity and division is that frequently we try to occupy the wrong role. 
We try to operate from the role of judge. And Paul knows that as long as we are trying to sit on a seat of judgment that we have built for ourselves, we will be unable to, to exist healthily in, in, in a holy manner in a diverse context. Once we become the curators of who is allowed into the church, once we are the judge that gives the thumbs down or the thumbs no, once we're the curators in the same way that we curate our news sources or our social media feeds, we have misunderstood our role in the church. Jesus calls us to be servants and not judges. And I say this as someone who loves to judge. For those who speak Enneagram language, I'm an Enneagram one. I'm judging everyone in the room right now, quietly in my head. I can't turn it off. I just can't. And yet Paul is reminding me and all of us that this throne of judgment was never ours to occupy. Because what we turn, what, what is intended to be a throne of, of judgment in the realm of grace and in mercy, we turn into a, a throne of judgment that becomes shame and becomes guilt. Now, what the scripture is not saying is it's not saying you stay silent about things in the world that are evil or when you see sin encountering and hurting those whom you love. Paul says very clearly, have your convictions. And we'll see later on in this text, Paul says to speak up and act out of those convictions. Instead, what this is saying is that we ought to be less concerned with whether or not someone is living faithfully as we think they should, right? Is following Jesus in the same manner that we think they should follow Jesus. And instead, understand that sometimes two servants of the same master are sent in different directions for different tasks. We can't be in the business of cloning ourselves. Jesus always frequently tries to teach his disciples that every moment spent judging a sister or a brother is a, is a moment that could have been better spent in service and seeing us as in ministry with people, not ministry to people or for people. Here, let me help you get better, but instead let us serve alongside one another. Jesus says things like, judge not lest ye be judged. It's pretty pithy, pretty tight. Let one without sin cast the first stone. Take the plank out of your eye before removing the splinter from your friend's eye. Or I love this one from John. Did I stutter? Seriously, knock it off, you jerks. That was a paraphrase. I mean, Jesus is constantly trying to help define our role in the kingdom of God and that we don't sit high up above everybody else looking down our nose in judgment. And I know it feels good, but the more we can be servants, the more we can see ourselves alongside one another, then maybe there's something the Holy Spirit can do in that space. Paul goes on to say this in verse 9, this is why Christ died and lived, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you look down on your brother and sister? We will all stand in front of the judgment seat of God. Paul says this because he knows that God's judgment seat, again, is full of grace and full of mercy. He says, because it is written, as I live, says the Lord. Y'all hear this. We read this, we fly past it because we feel like we've heard it before. As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So Paul's referencing scripture here, and again, it's words that sound familiar if you've been in church for any length of time. But when we stop and really think about the imagery and the language here, every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will, will give praise to God. I'm not sure where folks ever got this idea that Christianity ought to be an exclusive religion when throughout scripture, God casts this vision that the kingdom of God is for everybody. Everybody? Yes, everybody. And guess what? Here's where I'm stepping on my toes. In the kingdom of God, not every knee will bow at your altar, and not every tongue will sing my favorite hymn, and that is a very good thing. Not every knee is going to bow at my altar or your altar. Not every tongue is going to sing our favorite hymn. We may bow in different ways. We may sing with different voices and different languages, and that is all to the glory of God. This radical diversity, everybody, everybody, everybody is a God-sized dream for who the church could be, will be, 
And yet Paul is not naive enough to believe that diversity comes without challenges, right? Paul understands that this is difficult. So he goes on in verse 13, and he says, stop judging each other. Again, this refrain. He says, instead, this is what you should decide. Never put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. Paul says, I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is wrong to eat in and of itself. Again, convictions are good. If you're in a relationship with God, you are going to have strong personal convictions. And yet, notice that that's not the letter that Paul writes. Paul doesn't write a letter saying, get on board with the pork train or get out, right? He could have. If you've read other, other works by Paul, you know Paul is very opinionated. Say amen, somebody. He's got no problem staking his foot in the ground. And yet here he says, I know I'm convinced that nothing is wrong to eat in of itself. But if someone thinks it's wrong to eat, it becomes wrong for that person. If your brother or sister is upset by your food, you are no longer walking in love. Don't let your food destroy someone for whom Christ has died. And don't let something you consider to be good to be criticized as wrong. God's kingdom isn't about eating and drinking, but about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you think Paul's still talking about food at this point? No. He's not really talking about pork. He's not really talking about Sunday versus Saturday. He's addressing this growing community of believers, but it's a community that is not living into the, quote, standards of faith that this tra more tradition-oriented folks amongst them believe should be the standard for everybody. Now, Paul's answer is not to discard tradition entirely. In fact, if you go read the, the letter to the Romans, he is very clear that that tradition is a, is a foundational, formational place where the faith springs its life from. But Paul is deeply committed to reminding them that they need to ultimately that they need each other, discomforts and all, that when we get together, and yeah, some of us want to look back and, and, and recognize and celebrate where we've been, and some of us don't honestly care about that, and we just want to run towards the future full steam. We need that tension. We need to know where we've been and where we're going. When we refuse to allow the kind of discomfort in our churches that comes from having different people with different ideas and different visions and, and, and different uh, convictions, if we refuse to allow that kind of discomfort in the church, we end up rejecting children of God and the Holy Spirit as well. That's what Paul is saying. That is what is at stake. If we are only going to allow people in these doors and in these pews that look like me or talk like you, then what we're effectively doing is shutting the doors to so many and saying these pews are full. And that's where the Holy Spirit could be most at work. We need each other. And you know what? We need the new person who will find us next week. Maybe you're watching on YouTube and it's a week later because time is a funny thing. And we need that new person to challenge us in ways that we cannot yet imagine. Paul knew something that we are still discovering 2,000 years later. New people engaging with a new faith or a new community will lead everyone to new heights of righteousness and peace and joy in this Holy Spirit. Think about who this church was a year ago before Cindy Rowe joined this church, those of you who know Cindy. Are we a better church now because Cindy is a part of us? Think about who we were before Michael and Dwayne joined AUMC. Are we a better church because Michael and Dwayne are members here? Think about who we were before Beverly Taze joined this church. Were we a better church because Beverly found a home here? I could go on and on. I could talk about Jim and Barbara Adams who've been here longer than most. If you can even remember what the church was like before Jim and Barbara were here, isn't it a better church because they are here today? Right. Every time somebody new comes, now I imagine somebody that I just named has created discomfort for someone in the pews at some point. Say amen, somebody. Beverly's laughing. She goes, I know I've made some people uncomfortable. 
But that discomfort leads to growth. It leads to freshness. It leads to new life. We got to give thanks to God when new shows up and makes us uncomfortable. So then Paul puts a bow on it and says this. So let's strive for the things that bring peace and the things that build each other up. Well, there's enough there right there to end a sermon. Let's strive for the things that bring peace and the things that build each other up. You know, as I look at the way that our culture can inform us, I think that we live in a culture and a time that is really good at training us on how to fight well and how to tear each other apart. Have you seen that happen in your life? Have you had relationships fall apart, tear down in recent years? I have. We don't live in a culture that's going to naturally teach us how to bring peace and to build each other up. In many ways, I think Romans 14 might be one of the most countercultural texts we have in our scriptures today. It's Paul's way of acknowledging that conflict is an ever-present reality in any community, and especially in churches, and especially in churches that want to swing their doors wide open. I think that Paul knows that we typically fail at conflict in churches in two key ways. The first is that we look down at one another in judgment, and we have all been guilty of this. Paul knows that so long as we are busy judging each other, we have no real hope of moving forward. Now, it is really easy to say, bring peace into that conflict, and that's easier said than done. I've found in my own life that before I can bring peace into disagreement or bring peace into that kind of conflict or, or, or disagreement over convictions of the Holy Spirit, what I have to bring first is curiosity. I have to quiet the judgment in my own head, in my own soul, and instead elevate the curiosity within myself to ask questions. Because you know what I have found to be true, and maybe you have as well, that people's convictions rarely come from a good book they read. People's convictions almost always come from personal experience, from identity, from trauma, from stuff that you couldn't possibly know by scanning and surfing their Facebook page. And as long as I sit on the throne of judgment and think I know everything about this person because of the way they think and the way they talk and the way they act, if I can't turn towards curiosity and ask those helpful probing questions, tell me about yourself. Tell me how you arrived at this conclusion. Have you experienced this in action? I'm always, I'm always amazed at what I learn. And what it does is it allows me to have more compassion where before all I wanted to have was judgment. Bringing peace can start with bringing curiosity rather than judgment. It is so much easier for me to offer someone a snap judgment rather than a question of curiosity. And I wonder how much peace we have robbed ourselves of by simply withholding curiosity. The second way that Paul sees that we fail at conflict is that we look for everyone else to be more like me. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the whole world was just like me? No, that'd be god-awful. Be a world full of jerks that never take the trash out. So Paul says, build others up. Again, thanks, Paul. Oh, build others up. Great advice. He's a consultant, right? Thanks. We hadn't thought about that one. That's good. It sounds a little cliche, but I think Paul's main point here is the direction that they are growing, right? We're building each other up in the faith. Our mission is not to make other people more like us, but instead to build each other up in the faith. So it's not about me making sure that you're following Jesus exactly the way that I am, but instead me ensuring that I can trust that each one of us is following Jesus with the same kind of conviction so that when we go in different directions, we know that that's born not of us individually, but born of God. And I can release whatever need for control I may need to have over everybody acting, behaving, thinking the same way. Now that's a wild way to live as a church. And it requires an immense amount of humility and a lot of trust in the Holy Spirit. But I believe that we can be those kind of people here at AUMC. I believe that we have been people like this at AUMC. 
And I feel this is the direction that God is calling us even further, to be a Romans 14 kind of church where we know the convictions that we stand firmly for. We know that we want to be a place where folks are not harmed by others' convictions. We want to be a place where folks are loved and given the freedom to be who God created them to be. We want to be a church like that. And yet, we want to make sure that our doors are wide enough and our table long enough to welcome in those who aren't even here yet who are going to make us uncomfortable in ways that we can't possibly imagine. But I believe that discomfort will be a blessing as it has been before and it will be again. So let's be blessed as an uncomfortable congregation. Amen? Paul's vision for how we live as Christians in a diverse and divided world looks like this. It means living like a servant, approaching the world not from your throne seat of judgment, but instead getting on the ground and serving with people, even with people whom you deeply disagree. It means embracing diversity and the discomfort that comes with it and allowing diversity to change us and not just the other way around means bringing peace and building up, even if peace starts with curiosity and nobody ever looks exactly like us. God is glorified by that. Live like a servant. Embrace diversity and discomfort and bring peace and build up. A Romans 14 church. I see a church like that today. I pray we could be a church like that for many days and years and generations to come. Amen.